and you'll grab your Bibles. We're in the book of James, the touchy-feely, wonderful, lovely, full-of-love book of James, right? Okay, well, he's a little more pointed than that. You know, he's, he's like, uh, well, I don't want to say that. I was going to make a comparison, but I'll, I'll leave it alone. But uh, we're going to, James 1.16 is where we're going to be at. But we're continuing our series in this book of James as he calls the readers to, to a, a, a sense of maturity and, and a commitment to loving God. But not only loving God, moving beyond that and that commitment in our everyday life and how we, how we present ourselves and how we do things for the Lord. The first thing he tackle, uh, tackles is what we talked about in communion, having that joy during life, uh, you know, especially during those times of trials and, and tribulations of knowing that, that in the end we go to be with the Lord, and that's what truly matters. And then he follows when he starts talking about resisting temptation. I don't know about you. Do you ever tempted, or is it just me? I mean, you know, we are all, we've all been there, uh, you know, which he knows the devil is going to try to use to drag us and, and you know, to, to get us away from the Lord. He uses it every chance he gets. So God uses trials to lift us up, and Satan uses temptation to tear us down. So you have that opposite effect. Mature believers, you know, endured the trials and they resist the temptations that we've talked about. Yet carnal Christians, those that are, that are immature, those that are still in the baby stage, if you want to call it that, resist the trials. It runs away from the Lord and, uh, and they give into temptation more often than not. It doesn't mean that, that mature believers don't have sin. It doesn't mean mature believers don't have temptation. It just means the carnal Christian just, just gives in no matter what. It just happens. So we can elevate ourselves to a deeper walk with the Lord, one of faith and maturity. And that's what James is trying to call us into. And last week, like I said, we ended talking about temptation. How do we react uh, and how we're, we're drawn away by enticement of the Lord? And it brings us a sin. And, and we use the example of fishing because I always like to talk about fishing. Um, but, you know, that bait that's been thrown out there and it looks so enticing, but it's, you know, it's hiding that hook in the middle of it. And, and, and it brings sin into our lives. You know, Paul said the, the same thing in Galatians 6, 7. He says, do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. We reap what we sow. And if you make it a pattern of your life to sow in the flesh, to plant fleshly things, you're going to reap those fleshly things. But if you sow godly things, what will you reap? Godly blessings in your life, the things that are of God. And if you make it a pattern to follow God, you reap the everlasting life. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So this could be what James is getting at. But there's another way of looking at this also. Because if you, we like to divide the Bible up. Oh, here's chapter, here's verse. Okay, here's a subtitle you know, sub, uh, for, for this chapter. And, and these verses go with this, and this verse goes with this. But if you really look at it, you, you see the connection of the thoughts of verse 13 and 16. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, 
nor does he tempt anyone. And then verse 16, do not be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above. If this is his line of thought on this, then James is warning believers not to blame God for the, for, you know, for the temptations that they face, because temptations are of the devil. They're evil, and it comes from, from evilness. And, and God is holy, God is not evil, and God cannot have evilness within him. So therefore, it can't be of him. He's trying to elevate our thinking to stop blaming God for sin. And we've seen this throughout our lives at, at different points. Well, I drink, and if God really wanted to take that desire away from me, he would. What have you just done? You just blame God for your actions. So you can see how we kind of do this in our, in our thinkings. And James is trying to get us to grow up. James is trying to, uh, to get us to mature and take responsibility for our actions. And this is what every parent wants for their, from their child, right? No matter the age, right? Some of you guys are sitting there going, oh, I got some older kids, you know, and I want them to take responsibility for their actions also. God brings trials, but not temptations. Maturity is taking responsibility for our actions. Paul showed us this maturity when he was living in Corinth. I've been to Corinth. It's an amazing place. But he was living a life of godliness in the middle of godlessness. It'd be like you going to Las Vegas and living downtown Las Vegas. Okay? That's what was going on in Corinth and probably even worse. The Corinthian church was a very immature church. And Paul said uh, to them in 1 Corinthians 1.12, Now this is our boast. Our conscience testifies that we have conducted ourselves in the world, and especially in our relations with you, with integrity and godly sincerity. We have done so relying not on worldly wisdom, but on God's grace. He's basically saying, let us be an example to those that are around us as godly men and women who follow the Lord's ways. In other words, a spirit-filled believer, you know, doing what is right and making that conscious decision. So God has good things in mind for us because all that matters is eternity. That is our view. That is our thought pattern. As Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, God put eternity on our hearts. Is eternity on your heart or is worry on your heart? Is eternity on your heart or thinking about sin on your heart? What is on your heart? Because God is putting eternity there. This is the view that we need to have. So our goal in life is to become more like Jesus with that eternal view as the Father of light is leading us. 2 Corinthians 4.1, Paul talks about something that James is getting at here. He says, therefore, since, though God, uh, since through God's mercy we have, we have this ministry, we do not lose heart. Rather, we have renounced secret and shameful ways. We do not use deception nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truly plain, uh, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In other words, those that don't want to hear the word of God. 
Verse 4 of 2 Corinthians 4 says, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Have you seen a lot of blinded people? <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we preach is not of ourselves, but of Jesus Christ our Lord, and ourselves as the servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of God's glory displayed in the face of Christ. You see how it's the heart connecting everything to God? God's putting it into our heart. It's not just this organ. It's our whole being. It's, it's who we are when it comes down to the essential Paul's saying, we have a part in all of this, and we're going to go out there, and we should be sharing the good news because we're living light in the middle of the darkness. So therefore, we need to remain faithful in our holy life, in our holy walk, because we are supposed to bring Christ to men. Have you noticed it's not the other way around? We don't bring men to Christ. That's the Holy Spirit's job. We bring Christ out there. We present it to the world, and then the Holy Spirit draws them into him. He has commissioned us to go into the world and preach the word, and one way we do that is by living in a holy way. Again, not perfect, but in the ways of God. Don't talk a good talk and then completely live the opposite way. Don't do that. It's never a good thing. James says in verse 18, he chose to give us birth through the word of truth. See, we live in this truth, and this truth is Jesus Christ. If the skies declare the glory of God, then what are we supposed to do in the light of God? We're supposed to declare the glory of God. If the heavens can do it, then certainly the pinnacle of his creation, us, we should be doing it also. The consistency in living a holy life is maturity and slowly becoming the light of God. Not turning on the light for some people. Oh, I turned on the light for these people, but these other people, eh, I can just be myself. You know, I was talking to somebody, a, a chaplain down at Tulare PD, and um, they said, yeah, the officers are going to be on their best behavior around you guys, because we had a chaplain's meeting, and I'm thinking, that's good and bad, you know. I've been, I've, I've been around football teams my whole life, you know, athletic trainer, junior high, all the way through college and stuff, so I've heard it and, and probably seen most of it, you know, and it's just, it, you, you not that you get used to it, but you're sitting there going, I want a person to be themselves because then maybe I can influence them. I don't want somebody pretending around me. We should not be out in the world and pretending to be somebody we're not, uh, that we're not. You know, I have two great kids. How do I know that? People tell me they're great. They tell me how great they are. Brandon is polite, he's helpful, he's full of goodness, he's humble, he's kind, he's braggadocious sometimes, you know. Grayson is, has many of the same attributes. Why are they great kids? Well, by the grace of God, one. Secondly, my wife and I try to constantly be who we are around them. We try to, you know, be consistent in our parenting, in our expectations, 
and how we act and how they should act. We are the same way when we're around them and when we're not. It doesn't mean that they're perfect and we don't have difficulties raising them. We've had some here and there, but we work through them. But we try to be the light for them to follow. That's what we're talking about here. I don't want to be a light and then be a darkness. I don't want to be that light switch that flips off and on and off and on around different people because this is immaturity. Last week, we ended up talking about the, the first fruits of, and us being the first fruits of his new creation. Now, this is really important. The first fruits of the harvest. You know, in the, uh, around the month of, of March and April, the Jews, they have three festivals kind of thrown together. They have Passover, they have the Feasts of the Unleavened Bread, and during the middle of that week, they have the, the, the Feast of the First Fruits. They have a winter harvest, a barley harvest that they would plant during wintertime, and it would come about, and harvest time would be right in during that week. And what they would do is they would bring that first fruits and dedicate it to the Lord. The first stalks that they would take out of the ground would be an offering of thanksgiving and acknowledgement that God has blessed them with provisions to be able to live on. In the fall, they had the Feast of the Tabernacles, and we've talked about that in the past, where they, they really celebrated. And then in the spring, they had this one day to remember with the new harvest. God is saying, I get the first. I should get the best. And he's also telling us, if you honor me, I'm going to bless you with a great harvest, and you're going to be a part of the first fruits. James has this in mind when he's calling us the first fruits of God, referring to the cap I mean the capture, the, the, the rapture. The church is to be, to be raptured before the tribulation begins. I'm a, I'm a pre-trib guy, uh, as church lingo goes. Some are not. That's okay. I'm not going to fight about it. That's just what, how I read it. Daniel talks about in Daniel 9 where, where the Antichrist comes back and, and signs a treaty and deals with the mess in the Middle East and gets everybody to sing Kumbaya, and we know it's not going to last because then he turns on the Jews and, the, and persecutes them to eliminate them. But there's a period where, where, um, where, where the rapture will take place. And when we die, our soul goes to be with the Lord. When we die now, our soul goes to be with the Lord. But our body, what? Returns to dust. But that's not the end. That's not permanent. Our bodies are going to resurrect also and be reunited with the soul that is with God. In 1 Corinthians 15, 20, it says, But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through, through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes, through, comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn, Christ, the firstfruits, then when he comes, those who belong to to him. The harvest of the souls uh, is what we call it. Uh, there's, a, the, there's a succession to this resurrection. Jesus comes first. 
then the church saints, the rapture, and then they'll have the seven years of, of tribulation and Jesus uh, returns with the church after that. And then there actually is two groups in the middle of, of all that. The, you have the tribulation saints out of uh, Revelation 6 and 7, those who begin to believe and start to recognize the Antichrist for who he is. And then those who, who, who die from the faith, uh, who come to God during that tribulation period. The Antichrist will kill many uh, for those who stand up for the truth. And then you will have the thousand-year reign. In Isaiah 65, 20, it says, Christ will be on the throne, but there will no longer be death. So these guys will be resurrected, and, and, and death will not, uh, will not be done away with until Satan is thrown into the lake of fire. That will happen at the last resurrection when it takes place, the resurrection of the unbelievers. This is Revelations 20, 11 through 15. They've been in Hades. They've been in this holding place. And it's not hell that we think of. It's not the lake of fire. But once they have their day in court, the sentencing phase, then they'll be cast into the fire with their leader, Satan. Now, the rest of the chapter gives instructions for living. We understand that we become the first fruits of his creation. Then how do we glorify God in how we live? Well, in verse 19, it says, My dear children, or my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. This is a concept of one mouth and two ears, right? As the old saying goes, God gave you two ears and one mouth, so you should listen twice as much as we like to say it. We should listen more than we talk. As Solomon says in Proverbs 10, 19, sin is not ended by multiplying words, but the prudent hold their tongues. We like to cover sin through our mouth, don't we? Oh, well, what I was really thinking is da 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 And we just go in this long explanation when you said, I just really screwed that one up, didn't I? I accept responsibility. And the more we talk, the more irritated we get sometimes. The more we talk, the more we work ourselves up. We can learn to be slow to wrath by being swift to listen. Because our anger comes from us being self-centered and not others-centered. We're not looking out to other people. We're not thinking about others. We're thinking about ourselves. You know, uh, human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires, he says. You see, the world is looking and watching our character. And when we are angry, what do they think? <laughs> yep, look at that Christian. Mm-hmm. Yep, that's why I'm not one. They'll use any excuse, right? Don't give the world an excuse. Say you're an elder of the church and you have an affair. People outside of the church, what do they think? <laughs> Typical. Don't give people an excuse. And then they view God, not as light, but as darkness. Anger is just as bad as many other sins because of what it produces. 
God expects something more out of our lives. And that's called maturity. Doesn't mean you can't get upset, but you should be slow to anger in how you handle it. Verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. You know, this is talking about how we are purified when we become believers. And then we'll, we're, we're continually cleaned along the way. And if you're not cleaned along the way, what happens? Come look at my garage. You know what I'm saying? I'm working on several other projects, so the garage just gets more stuff piled into it. You know? And I'm thinking, I need to get to that, but i got to finish this, 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 and this. But in the meantime, filth, in a sense, gets filled up in the garage. That's the same way with our lives. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each each person according to their conduct according to what their deeds deserve. You know, if the Lord is not counteracting, the poison that builds up in our heart, how do we counteract that? Well, by adding God's Word, by walking in the Spirit, by being of the things that are of God, then what is left? Well, we fill it up with God, then not much. But if we don't fill it up with God, we have moral filth and evil, and that is life without God. Just earthly desires. Not necessarily bad desires. Some of them are very bad. But they're certainly not heavenly desires. See, the heart is not always pretty. The only thing that counteracts uh, the, the unprettiness of, uh, and the ugliness of our heart is God, His Word, His ways. His friends, his children, the relationships that we build, all those counteract us and help purify us. Let us have the, over, you know, the Holy Spirit overflowing in us, not the flesh overflowing in us. Like we talked about last week, there's the two natures within us that are warring, and which one are you siding with? Because it's a decision. God has a way of purifying our hearts, and, and, and that is by, by living in the Spirit. And he shows us what's in our heart when we start living in the Spirit, and then we have a chance to ask for forgiveness and the wisdom that we talked about of being able to change. If we walk in the Spirit, then we don't give over to the fleshly desires. We don't give over to the world. If we walk in the flesh... What comes out of us? Evilness. So how do we prevent that? Well, verse 21. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. There's three different... Well, let me rephrase this. Our salvation is three-dimensional, okay? Okay? The scriptures say that we have been saved 
for the penalty of sin or from the penalty of sin. In other words, salvation, Hebrews 2.8. Then we're continually being saved from the power of sin. This is a big church word that we like to use, sanctification. We see this in 1 Corinthians 1.18. And then we, are, we will be saved from the presence of sin. And this is glorification. This is Revelations 22.15. Ultimately, sin won't be around us because we'll be with God. And what can't be with God? Sin. Evilness. The things that are not of God can't be around him because he's holy. So we will be saved from that. So we, we were saved, we are being saved, and we will be saved. You see, it's a process of all that's, that's happening. So all three are happening. You accepted Christ and you're saved from hell. You're being saved from the, the earthly desires by the flesh controlling us. And then someday we won't have to deal with that sin and we will be saved. So we confess our sins and we ask for forgiveness. And it begins this process of planting the word of God in our lives. Then we start to meditate on the word. We start to think about the word. And we start to learn the word. You know, it's like God having to come in and tear up the hard ground. You know, my son, he likes to dig. I don't know why. My kindergartner, literally... We get home, the first thing, if you come over to my house, you will see a pile of dirt out in a little area, in the middle of our lawn. We kind of have this uh, patch that should have plants in it that doesn't have plants in it right now. If anybody wants to come over and plant something, you're welcome to, you know. But anyway, but it's been this flat dirt, and he wants to dig it. Well, I, I got a new, uh, oh, what do they call it? Uh, um, breaks up all the hard dirt. Thank you, rototiller. Got a new rototiller, and first thing I did was like, I got to test this out, you know. So I went out to that patch of dirt right there in the middle, and I kind of worked some of that up. Next thing I know, my son's out there going, and he's got a big pile. So then I used the rototiller in the back to work on a project and stuff, and then he's like, Dad, rototill this up, you know, do the machine, do the thing. Now we got a big pile of dirt in the back. It is so deep and so high that water collects in it. And if we're not careful, he'd go out there and get all muddy and then come running back into the house. Yeah, don't look at our blinds by the back window, okay? Just got dirty handprints on it. And we're like, stop. But the Lord has to come through and he's got to break up that hard ground, break up the fallow ground, the ground that hasn't been used. When I am obstinate, where I am, I am like hard-headed toward God. When I'm resisting God's presence and God says, you want me to break that up? If you're sincere about it, I'll do it. And he brings in the rototiller and the thing's just rumbling around, going all over the place. But we get this attitude of meekness this attitude of being humble and, and allows things to happen. Verse 22, do not merely listen to the words as so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Yes, the doing does not save us, but the doing is a part of words God. And he's saying, go out there and do the things that are of God. This is a powerful verse right here. The church has many hearers, many hearers of God's word. 
And many have deceived you know, ourselves uh, that, that going to church makes us Christians. But James is saying it's so much more than that. True saving faith is putting our belief into action into this world, not only hearing, but also doing. If you don't do something with what the Holy Spirit is teaching you through the word, then you're on shaky ground. Jesus talks in Luke 6, starting around verse 46. He says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? As for anyone who comes to me and hears my word and and puts them in the practice, I will show you what they are like. They are like a man building a house who, who dug down deep and laid the foundation on a rock. When the floods came, the torrents struck, that house, uh, you know, that house, but uh, when everything came at that house, it, it, it could not shake it because it was well built. But the one who hears my word and does not put it into practice is like a man who built his house on the ground without a foundation. The moment the torrent struck, that house, it collapsed and its destruction was complete. This kind of reminds me of the the play set I've been building out back for my kids. The first play set, it just set on the ground. No foundation to it. The water and the dirt started rotting the boards down below. The, you know, the weed eater started eating into the post. And, and, you know, a four by four is now like a a one and a quarter by a one and a quarter round, you know, as a weed eater kind of, you know, thing was ready to fall over. It was on shaky ground. It got to the point where I'm sitting there going, I know my kids can't play on that anymore. Now, if you come over, you're going to see a foundation built. I mean, this, this place that's going to last 20 years. I mean, I tell you. I built a platform on the ground. The thing sets on the platform. Now those things won't happen. The weed eater can't get near it. The water's not going to rot it out. Why? There's a foundation. It's the same thing as the Word of God. Two people, both hearing the same Word. There's those that hear the Word of God and try to obey. And I say try because it's, it's a, it, we have to work at it, don't we? We obey. Then there's those that hear the Word of God. And don't apply it at all. They've done their weekly duty by coming to church, and they're gone. Jesus says, when life comes, and problems come into your life, the one who has applied the word of God survives, and the one who doesn't apply the word of God, they're washed away because of no foundation. Verse 23, it says, anyone who listens to the word does, but does not do what it says. It's like someone who looks at, the, uh, look at their face in the mirror and after looking at himself, goes away and immediately forgets what he looks like. This person comes to church and briefly looks at the word of God and then does nothing with it. It's like the person who forgets what they look like because the information doesn't change them. Normal person looks in the mirror and goes, ah, okay, maybe not that. But they look in the mirror and they go, oh, okay, I need to comb my hair. I need to do this. I need to do that. Oh, I got something in my teeth. Okay, yeah, it's not a good look. I understand. But, you know, but, or my face is dirty. You know, my son uh, playing out in, the, in the, the dirt and stuff, he'll come in and, you know, the side of his face will just have this handprint of mud, just, you know, or dirt coming down. And he won't notice it. And then he'll go to the mirror and he goes, oh, my face. 
and then he wants us to clean it. That's a person who sees it, applies it, and does something about it. And then you have the narcissist. Looks in the mirror. Oh, man, I look good, don't I? Yeah, I just got out of bed. It's 3 a.m. or 4 a.m. or 5 a.m. I don't need a shower. I'm good. You know, they don't even recognize it. That's a person who does nothing with the word of God. This is the case with immature Christians. Come to church, look in the mirror, and make no changes in your life. They may even think, man, everybody else needs a change. Oh, especially that person over there. I know what they did. They need a change. But I'm, I'm, I'm good. I'm good. This is the opposite of mature believer. The one who comes to the Lord and, and takes it in. And, and as the Lord reveals something to us, we start to make changes. We start to become holier and mature. And, you know, we, we become those mature believers in the word of God. This pastor, you know, this person doesn't mind if the pastor steps on their toes a little every now and then because there's grace built in there. You know, there's one thing to convict. The Word of God convicts us to change. It's another thing to condemn. I hope in all the teaching that God has me do, me, me do it, it, you know, through the Holy Spirit, that maybe sometimes there's conviction in there from God, but not condemnation from man. That's my desire. Hopefully, hopefully, that's what happens. Well, in Hebrews 10, God promises a new covenant will be made. He says, this is a covenant I make with them after a time, says the Lord. I will put my law on their hearts, and I'll write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sin and lawless acts I will remember no more. This goes all the way back to the Old Testament when the Lord is uh, talking with Ezekiel, and, and he says in Ezekiel 36, 26, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you, and I will remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of of flesh, other words, a, a, a softened heart. And I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. That's done through Jesus Christ. That is done when, when the, the Holy Spirit was, was given to us on the day of Pentecost. The perfect law of freedom is salvation through the grace of faith. The Holy Spirit coming along beside of us coming along inside of us and beside us and working with us. The Holy Spirit, you know, he wants us to, to change us into being like Christ each and every day, just a little bit more. When we look into the Word of God, when we're reading it, and we think, how does this apply to me? How can I be more like Christ to glorify God? Because it's all about glorifying God. That's what our life is about. 2 Corinthians 3.18, we are being transformed into the image of an ever-increasing glory which comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is the perfect law of freedom. Really, this isn't even law. It's grace. 
It's almost tongue-in-cheek the way he's, he's uh, uh, doing it here. James is calling it law, but it's the grace of God given out to us. We have the will to obey God because we have the Holy Spirit within us. Because without it, we don't have the power to obey. And that power comes from God through his Spirit. Verse 26, it says, Those who consider themselves religious and yet do not keep a tight rein on their tongue de- deceives themselves. And their religion is worthless. The word for religious here is a Greek term, and it's a, and it's a very negative term. It's never used in a good way. It's, it's bad religion, not good religion. Used for those who, who, who look religious, and they, their ways seem religious, and they, they look that way to, to make themselves righteous before God, but really they're just going through these motions. And believing these motions is what makes it worth it. See, religion, bad religion, can give the appearance of godly things, but they're of the flesh. This is why we rely on the power of the Holy Spirit. James is saying God doesn't want a religion of the mouth where we say the right things but then do nothing. That's bad religion. James talks about the tongue here, and at the end of the next chapter, he's going to talk about it again. And then he does a whole chapter on it in chapter 3, and he just really lays into it. James is starting to build that foundation. Verse 27, and I'll end with this today. It says, religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after the orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. One thing I've learned over the years is when we're serving those that are down on their luck, and I think this goes beyond just the orphans and widows, because we could just concentrate on orphans and widows and not do anything else, right? Because that's good religion. That's what it says. I I think he's trying to make the point that when there are those that are down on the luck, as the saying goes, Anyone who doesn't have the ability to completely take care of themselves, we, you know, who need a leg up in this world, uh, when we do things for them, it's of God. And this is why, you know, this is why we're going to the uh, you know, Philippines. They need to hear the saving grace of God. You know, I sponsor one of the kids. Why? Because he, he doesn't get meal. He gets one meal at home pretty much. We give them money so we can afford books and afford school because they have to pay for the school. They got to pay for the test. And if we give them money, they get lunch and they get breakfast. All for the piddly, you know, 25 bucks a month. You know, we have all heard the commercials. <laughs> it's true. This is what we're doing in the Philippines. We're just doing it on, on our own, not going through any big organization. But they need to hear the saving grace of God. And I want to, you know, I want him to become more like Christ each and every day. And it's important to help him and others, those here that are around us. This is why we're doing the, the Care Pregnancy Center. You know, some of those young, young ladies need a mother figure in their life. They need a sister. They need a brother. They need a father figure to lean on. And it goes same for the young men. We need to be there to support them, to listen to them, to teach them things like money management. But in a godly way. To teach them things like how to raise a child in a godly way. Or maybe how to cook for their little family. 
out of my groceries, whatever it may be. That is good religion, and this is what I want for my life. This is what I want for your life. We need to not be hearers of the word, not only hearers of the word, we need to be doers of the word. So figure out what God wants you to do. It may be the things that we're involved in. It may not be the things that we're involved in. You've got to figure out where God wants you. Start praying about it now because those are the things that are of God. Because if we just hear and we walk away and do nothing, what does that do for us? Nothing. Absolutely nothing. So we're hearers and doers. doesn't save us, but it represents who God is. It's that light in the darkness. Well, why don't you stand and we'll pray as the worship team comes up and leads us in a last song. Lord, I pray that uh, for each and every one of us that are here today and those that that are online listening, the other churches in our area, we pray that we're not just hearers of the word, that we're just not good Sunday Christians, but we're doers. But we're not only doers, we're followers of yours and we follow your ways. We ask you, Lord, how do you want us to minister to this world? How do you want us to be the light in this world? Help clear out those things in my life so I can be a better light. Lord, we ask for forgiveness of our sins. And we pray that that sin doesn't get in the way of us glorifying you. Now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord's face shine down upon you. And may you glorify him this week. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.